Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 125. Today is Sunday, September 1st. So happy Labor Day weekend to all listeners in America and happy three-day weekend to my friends working in education. All right. So one of the really cool things about getting to meet all of these people that come on the podcast is I then have new friends who act as sort of curators of information. Now, what I mean by that is the last guest on this podcast was Thinzar, uh, based out of Myanmar. And now I follow her on social media and she posts about all these things happening in Myanmar, but things happening abroad. Um, her lens is human rights, so she's always posting about really cool people doing cool things. So she posted about Pia Klemp, who you may have heard of in the last two weeks or so. She was offered a offered. Well, she was presented with the Grand Vermeil Medal, which is a human rights award in Paris. Her and another ship captain, Carola Racket, were offered this for their efforts in rescuing migrants and refugees in the Mediterranean. But she turned it down, and that made a whole lot of news because she said that this is not necessarily a heroic effort. This is something that the governments within the EU should be doing themselves. So I was like, whoa, that sounds really interesting. Let me reach out to the organization that she's working with. That organization is called Sea-Watch. It is an NGO. And sort of like I just said, what they do is they do rescue missions for capsized boats full of migrants in the Mediterranean. So the representative from Sea-Watch today who joined this episode was Heidi Sadiq. She's really fascinating and inspiring, and I'm really, really excited that I had her on today. I would implore you to go to the show notes for this episode to find out more about Sea-Watch and to find out more about Heidi, because I think they are doing amazing work, and it's really necessary work. She has a really fantastic Twitter as well that I think that you should check out and follow. I was going to read one tweet here that she has. Um, this was from her voyage on Sea Watch 3. So this says, as we serve breakfast on Sea Watch 3 today, I remember the words of one of our 42 guests. In prison in Libya, every morning you were served a beating. That's the horror that he left behind, but Europe is still not allowing him to reach safety on land. So you'll understand what that's all about when you listen to um, Heidi's words and the things that she has to say in this episode. So again, please go to the show notes to find out a little bit more. I think that what they're doing is really, really important. And it makes me feel like I am not doing <laughs> enough with my life. Every time someone comes on here, I'm really inspired. And then I'm like, damn, I need to be doing more. Uh, so yeah, please go check out the show notes for that and check out the show notes for my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash the voyages of Tim Vetter. And that's a service where you can give um, monthly and that will support this podcast to keep these episodes coming. All right, short and sweet intro for today, folks. Enjoy this conversation with Heidi.
right, cool. Well, first of all, thank you. Thanks for doing this. I know it's also yeah. Sunday night there in Berlin, so I appreciate you giving me time. Yeah, no worries. Anytime. Uh, so I was like trying to rack my brain about where to start with this. Uh, I had just heard about Sea Watch because there's all this news right now about Pia Klemp, and I'll get to that in a little bit. Um, but first of all, I guess maybe sort of broadly, can you talk about what Sea Watch does? Sure. Uh, so Sea Watch is an NGO, uh, and it was set up in Germany in 2015 to respond to the emergency in the Mediterranean Sea, and specifically the Central Mediterranean. Um, because, as you'll know, at the time there was a record number of people attempting to cross and people dying. Um, and initially, Sea Watch was established as a monitoring mission to go to the Mediterranean and observe what is happening. Um, but with time, it became uh, yeah, painfully clear that there is also a huge rescue gap. And so Sea Watch began to also be involved in sea rescue. And that is fully within you know, the laws of the sea. Any uh, vessel, any captain uh, of a vessel is legally obliged to render assistance. So having a vessel in the Mediterranean uh, also meant that we then got involved in rescues. And with time, uh, the operations have kind of evolved uh, to mean that we are a member of a small civil rescue fleet uh, that is increasingly become smaller and smaller due to criminalization that is still active in the Mediterranean and still doing rescue. So we've gone from uh, NGOs only taking about a third of rescues in 2017 and before to now being... Um, Yes, almost the sole presence that is dedicated to this. Wow. Okay. Already, there's a lot I want to unpack from that. Um, so you talk about you know the crisis in the Mediterranean. There was a fantastic documentary that came out. I think maybe a year ago, maybe two years ago, about uh, rescue ships. I think coming from Turkey. Uh, can you talk about um, like what that crisis is? Uh, where are people coming from, and, and why are they crossing the Mediterranean? Okay, um, I think first of all, there is not one single profile of the person crossing the Mediterranean. I think we should start with that. Um, and secondly, I would actually uh, not necessarily delve into you know the individual circumstances. At the end of the day, uh, freedom of movement means that every individual has their own uh, motivations for fleeing or for leaving their home country or seeking safety elsewhere. So obviously nobody can speak to that except those people themselves. But I think the short answer that illustrates, you know, the, the gravity of what's going on here is that people cross the Mediterranean because they don't have any other alternatives to seek safety. There are no safe or legal means to uh, ask for a safe harbor in Europe, for example. So people are forced um, by policy um and by the way that Europe has prioritized border control over, you know, respecting uh, international human rights law and humanitarian law um, to yeah, make this treacherous journey and to risk their lives just to knock on the door and say, I'm looking for safety for me and my family. Uh, so I think, I mean, in general, people come from all over the place. Uh, and like I said, they have individual motivations, whether they're fleeing war or persecution of any kind. Um, you know, at the end of the day, that's not what we're there to establish. But it is very clear that if we were rescuing Europeans, it wouldn't be so controversial. But it's about the fact that they are migrants and refugees 
and that Europe doesn't want them. And one final thing that I want to say about that, sorry, sure. is that regardless of what people are from in their country, the people that we meet specifically in the central Mediterranean are fleeing Libya first and foremost, because we know that the situation there is very grave. They suffer human rights violations and, you know, torture and imprisonment and slavery. So whatever it was that got people to leave in the first place, we also know that people are fleeing the immediate danger in Libya. Okay, thank you. And that's, uh, thank you for your honesty. Thank you. I mean, that's an interesting perspective. Um, it, I'll, I'll get to sort of like the correlation here to the U.S. because obviously like, it's quite public um, border issues mm-hmm. here. But did I hear you correctly? Did I hear you say if there's a vessel in the Mediterranean, there is a legal obligation to help a capsized ship or people who are crossing? Yeah, that's not just in the Mediterranean. This is international maritime law. Ah. And even before it was law, it's a seafarer's tradition. You know, when someone's life is in imminent danger, um, a shipmaster is legally obligated to render assistance immediately. You know, when if you're the nearest vessel to anyone uh, in distress at sea, if you don't render assistance, you should be prosecuted because it's a crime. It's a crime to know that someone is dying, like being a firefighter and refusing to put out a fire. Right. You know? or, or or an ambulance refusing to uh, take a patient to hospital. Like it's a, a legal obligation that exists and that is, um, you know, enshrined in law because it protects human life. But unfortunately, what is happening now is that political gains and the politicization of this uh, phenomenon in the central Mediterranean is uh, so dominant that even basic international laws are being disregarded. All right. Now you are in Germany. You said Sea Watch was founded in Germany. I, I, I apologize that my understanding of European politics is very elementary, but it, uh, you know Germany to the south is landlocked. So is it that? Does everybody? Does every European nation have the same rights to the Mediterranean and and access to it and you know maritime rights and to, to be able to put ships there? Okay, no, so that's a, yeah, that's a good question. So basically, anywhere in the world, let's if we just zoom out of this problem uh, a little bit, any coastal state in the world has a responsibility in their waters. So you have territorial waters, which are about twelve nautical miles off the shore. And then you have another sort of gray zone called the contiguous zone up to 24 nautical miles. And then uh, there is a search and rescue zone where competent and legitimate coast guards will sort of be responsible for search and rescue of anyone in distress in that area in front of their uh, territory. So the same applies or should apply in the central Mediterranean. So Italy as a coastal state, Malta as a coastal state, and Libya as a coastal state, for example, because we know most people leave from Libya, should be responsible for the search and rescue and proper, complete rescue in those waters, even in national waters. Like I said, highly politicized. So it's one side of the the Mediterranean where there's the so-called Libyan Coast Guard, which we know is basically militia who have been sponsored and trained by the EU with the sole purpose of keeping people away from Europe and to take them back illegally to Libya. And then you have the Italian Coast Guard and the Maltese Armed Forces who occasionally and historically actually did 
the majority of rescues in that search and rescue area. And Italy had even expanded its search and rescue area all the way up to Libyan territorial waters. But slowly but surely, that responsibility was completely retracted, again, under EU policy to keep people away. And the reason I keep mentioning the EU is that this is a European problem. It's not a German problem or an Italian problem. It's a concerted effort by EU member states to basically leave people to drown, um, just as it was a concerted EU effort to launch a military, uh, you know, a naval operation to conduct rescues in the first place. So as the politics change uh, or, yeah, certain policy priorities are pushed through, we see that people or, sorry, states are no longer taking that responsibility at sea. So a German vessel, we fly the Dutch flag, by the way, so it's, it's a German NGO, but a Dutch ship. Um, it doesn't really matter where your ship is from and what the flag is. If you're in uh, any sea and there is a boat in distress, you are obliged to render assistance, regardless who you are, what your purpose is, whether you're a military vessel or a private vessel or commercial, it does not matter. So if I can read between the lines a little bit, it, it maybe sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it maybe sounds like there is a need for organizations like Sea-Watch because that uh, law that states that you must help a capsized ship uh, wasn't being followed to the full extent? Yeah, okay. and yeah exactly. Um, and to put it, yeah, let's say it very explicitly, we operate in a vacuum or a gap that is created by government. This is the job of government. It shouldn't be up to volunteers to take time off work to go make sure that people don't drown in the sea. This is our state's and our government's responsibilities that they are very much neglecting for the sake of other political priorities and border control uh, and really just deadly migration policy at all costs, keeping people away from Europe um, and now it depends on civil society and people who show solidarity with refugees around the world and in Europe especially now um, to yes to to uphold these laws and it's not just maritime law there's an element of human rights law as well um, which is basically this whole debate about where people are taken after they're rescued because we are very vocal and very clear about the fact that we don't take them back to Libya because it's a war zone and it's the place they're fleeing in the first place. Uh, but our European governments seem to turn a blind eye to that and basically say, all right, if you rescue them, just take them to Tripoli and not to Italy. Yeah. So I was going to ask you that um, when people are rescued, I don't know if you have statistics in front of you. So some of these questions might be a bit hard, but to the best that you can answer it, uh, like what percentage of people are turned back and then, like, maybe this sounds weird because we're talking about human beings here, but do member states of the EU have, like, a quota system where they're like, okay, this many people are going to go to Italy, this many people are going to go to Denmark? How does that work? Okay, so EU policy uh, to basically understand, well, it, the, there is no robust, predictable mechanism for the redistribution of new arrivals to Europe. It's Sailing. So there is the Dublin Agreement, which states that the coastal state, or, or basically the country of arrival, is responsible for processing any new arrival. So anyone arriving to Italy or Malta or wherever or Greece, those countries are charged with the responsibility of processing these people uh, and their potential asylum claims. 
which obviously means that countries like and Italy have completely overwhelmed with the numbers that have been arriving in previous years um, and basically have completely left alone by the rest of Europe. And there are agreements and other countries in the EU had uh, promised to take uh, a proportion of the people, but only took a fraction of what uh, they had committed to and basically left Italy and Greece to bear uh, the brunt of, of, you know, what is happening. Um, your question about, you know, the numbers of arrivals and statistics, there are some statistics, but they're a little bit skewed because what we see and what we can count is the numbers of people arriving. Now, the number of people arriving is not the full picture. We have no idea, actually, how many attempted crossings there are from Libya or elsewhere. We don't know how many shipwrecks there have been just in this last week. Maybe, coincidentally, we'll witness uh, a boat in distress or like a rubber boat with nobody on it with an assumption that at least 100 people have drowned that day. Like there are no solid um, numbers about how many people are actually trying to arrive. So even if we can say the numbers uh, of people arriving are declining, that does not mean the policy was a success because it basically just means more people are dying and we don't know about it. And the fact that NGOs' presence from the Mediterranean is being cracked down upon is because our presence sheds light on this fact that Europe is leaving people to drown and actually we have no clue what is happening. It's a big black hole um, and yeah, it could very well be that huge numbers of people are trying to cross, but they just don't make it. Okay. All right. This is going to be a, a long tangent here. Um, and I'm not quite asking you to solve this, um, massive international issue right now yourself, but you know, uh, I'll, I'll draw that parallel now to the United States in the United States right now. Um, there's obviously an issue about immigration um, at the southern border, refugees, mm -hmm. migrants. And, you know, there's one side of the argument that says, well, I'm an American. I pay American taxes. I want people who pay American taxes to be taken care of first. Um, and they say things like, you know, well, People who are coming here are, you hear this rhetoric all the time in the news, like uh, MS-13 and gang members and mm. all that kind of stuff. Um, but to me, it's like, sure, obviously we need to talk about immigration policy. Um, and I'm in favor of one that is uh, more attuned to uh, accepting people's human rights. But if you look historically at the United States' relationship with Central America and Mexico, the United States, through Nixon, through Reagan, up, upwards of Clinton, destabilized regions. Like, I mean, Nicaragua is a country of three million people, and we put hundreds of million dollars, um, you know, to stop the counter-revolutionary forces there. Uh, we've destabilized Guatemala, El Salvador. The United States has a massive market for drugs that come from Mexico. And then you see things like Mexican drug cartels get, uh, you know, coming to power and prominence uh, and making things violent there in some cities. And so I even think of a place like Libya, and I think, you know, we don't have to get too deep into it here, but like as awful as Gaddafi was, it's a very similar situation to removing Saddam, where after you get rid of the dictator who like was terrible, but sort of kept factions 
from vying for power, you now have a situation where that person's removed without a plan for, uh, I guess, a democratic process after that. And you have a, just like I just said, you have different factions vying for power and it's becoming like a hell for some people. Um, mm. So I don't know if your organization gets involved in this or if you know of any that do, but doesn't it make more sense for a country to help stabilize a place and to maybe provide assistance and aid and like use that to prevent an influx of migrants coming to your coming to the border like i don't know if that's a big discussion in europe right now uh i guess maybe that's a long thought but maybe just like your thoughts on that mm. okay thank you it's an interesting parallel uh, and obviously very important and i'll do my best to try and unpack that a little bit okay um but to start off the argument of prevention uh, does not negate the argument of direct action in emergency, right? right? So yes, of course, uh, it sucks that people are going through war and persecution and whatever it is, lack of opportunity and inequality in their countries of origin. And it sucks that they have to leave their home to uh, to better their lives or to try to at least or but to find freedom and safety. Yeah, and it is happening and that's the yeah. reality that we need to deal with. We, we are... Realists and any humanitarian actor knows that they are acting in a subpar world uh, and basically hopes that their job shouldn't even have to exist. So when people say, ah, you should stop doing this work in the Mediterranean because it only encourages people to come, you know, this pull factor myth that we've uh, busted many, many years ago, um, is kind of underlined with this argument of, wouldn't you be making much better use of your time and resources when you go and fix this in their country of origin? Uh, great, but then what happens to the unknown number of people who are sick, still stuck in detention centers in Libya? What do you want to do about them? Just leave them to drown? Right. Because we want to go to their country of origin and help out there? I mean, we're part... This is all bigger than Sea-Watch. It's bigger than the civil rescue fleet. There are other organizations who are mandated or at least well-equipped to deal with other issues in in countries like Libya, in countries of origin of the people that we meet. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to stress this, uh, you know, sort of logical argumentation or the, the, the flaw in this argumentation that, yes, uh, obviously all of this is a result of kind of imbalanced international power relations. And we must look to Europe for its complicity in a lot of, um, you know, the, the reasons why people flee in the first place, but we have to be realistic. The parallels with the U.S., I mean, I think this all just points to self-interested states, um, you know, who their commitment to human rights and their commitment to um, providing services and assistance to those in need of it, most in need of it, will vary depending on their foreign agendas or foreign policy interests. So uh, I don't really know what else to say about that. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, there is this fear mongering and this populist discourse that is now gaining a lot of traction both in the US and in Europe. You know, this fear of migrants, this fear of refugees uh, that is completely dis disproportionate and is giving uh, a very large chunk of the population and of politicians the idea that they can get away with uh, a lot of the, frankly, criminal things that that they're doing. Um, 
at the expense of human life and dignity. So, yes, the, the parallels are clear, whether it's a big wall or a big sea that's keeping people out. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, you know, for the sake of clarity for people listening, I, I wasn't suggesting, obviously, don't do the work in conjunction with like um, no, of course. trying to prevent these things. I mean, it's a very simple way maybe of looking at it, but I always just try to think like, you know, you don't, you don't choose like the vessel that you're born into, right? So you don't choose your body and you don't choose the circumstances that you're born into. So, you know, uh, a UK parliament member very well could have been someone born in Tripoli, very well could have been somebody mm. born in Baghdad, right? So... Um, again, that's a really simple way of looking at it, but I think one that is a little bit sobering for people. Um, like you could, you could be a refugee, you could be a migrant. You were just very fortunate to be born into uh, different circumstances. Um, when did you get? Sorry, I didn't mean to imply that your question. It was just a a sort of because yeah, anyone going on the Facebook page of Sea Watch or any uh, any other organization providing services to refugees. You just read the comments. Yeah. A lot of these comments will be, yeah, like these arguments come up. And I think it's very important to debate them and to, um, yeah, to, to make very clear that even though you make a valid argument does not mean or do, does not negate the, the necessity of what we do. Right. I'm sure. No. And I appreciate that. Um, I think it's important for people to know that that perspective exists because likely, you know, a lot of people who will be listening to this will be people that agree with us as well. Um, mm-hmm. so I do think it's important that they, that they hear both sides of the coin, even if it's just so that they can dismantle the <laughs> opposing argument. Um, mm. w- when did you get involved with Sea-Watch? Uh, with Sea-Watch towards the end of 2017. And I had been on a different uh, rescue vessel, uh, for about six months that year. Uh, uh and then I moved to Sea-Watch in November. Uh, so I've been involved with them in yeah varying uh, capacities for about a year and a half, or a bit longer. You were on the was it the Sea Watch three vessel? Mm-hmm. Um, are you comfortable with like with talking about your experiences and and the things that you saw when you were were on that vessel? Sure. Yes. Uh, do you mean specifically this last rescue that kind of made headlines all over the world or in general? Um, I think I'll get to that in a moment, but but I guess just in general, um, like what you're seeing when you're out there and, and uh, I'm sure it's like some really heavy experiences. Um, and again, not to be sensationalist, but just to sort of uh, show people factually what's going on in the Mediterranean. Sure, yeah, I, I do think that's important. Um, so what we see is a very clear, huge need. Um, when we go out, there are different ways that we can be alert to a, a boat in stress. And then when we reach it, it's often, uh, I mean, the, the conditions vary, um, but without a doubt, you know, they're overcrowded. Uh, people have been at sea for huge numbers of hours. They have no navigational equipment, no food or water, or at least not sufficient, no fuel, no idea where they're going, where they are. Uh, Many would be sick, many already dead or already in the water. So, I mean, the conditions are an emergency by every single standard. Um, And then, I mean, and that's the people that we find. There are also cases of being alerted to a distress case and you don't find them. You find a wreck and you know that people died. Um, Then actually the the more or equally difficult part is 
what people share once you know the they've caught their breath and they're on board uh they've made it alive and then they talk about their experience before even going to sea or being put out to sea um yeah they're incredibly difficult journeys of loss of death of torture of uh abuse and exploitation uh, and a lot of that takes place in Libya you know where people are again in these overcrowded and unofficial detention centers where even the the government the UN uh, recognized government in Libya has said we have no clue how many of these detention centers there even are um where they face sexual violence they face you know being sold as slaves and then trafficked or smuggled onto a little boat um basically to their death so the whole experience sounds incredibly traumatic and that's only made worse by the fact that you know the next destination is unsure uh you know floating around in the mediterranean waiting for europe to be uh to show respect for for what they their basic rights to safety uh makes it all the worse you know to feel like after all of that you're still not welcome in europe Yeah and you mentioned something in there that that I was going to ask you about. So I had somebody on um maybe almost a year ago at this point who was talking about trafficking in Southeast Asia. And I was wondering like are are all of these people in the refuge are are they all refugees in the sense that they're willfully making this trek or uh, are some folks being like like you mentioned trafficked for you know the variety of d- domestic servants uh on down to you know worse uh worse situations well whether they are refugees or not it is me or anyone like a competent uh state authority that goes through a fair process to establish who's who and what happened to them um but if i have to choose between calling people i mean i like calling people people uh, but if i have to choose between migrants or refugees i choose refugees because okay. um so many um you know for me clearly everyone has a right to safety and has a, a right to uh to ask for asylum um but people regardless again of of the reasons that they chose to leave their home or were forced to leave their home it that's not up to me to decide and i don't have numbers or proportions i can't say you know half left willingly and half didn't right. but from the stories that we hear and that i've personally heard over the years from people you know uh people's personal accounts of their journeys it is very very clear that people lose control over their journey it's not you know the misconception that still you know this has been world news or should have been for for many many years now uh this emergency and people still have the misconception that you know on the beaches of Libya people are buying a boat and getting on it whenever they please and are just willingly crossing the sea it it's not that simple some people get put on it without any choice of who they're with or whether they're separated from their families or not whether the boat is safe whether it's overcrowded what time of day to leave what the weather conditions are or the sea conditions so even if someone had in mind you know to reach europe which is fair enough everyone has a right to want to reach the safety that's very basic um and that doesn't make them you know any how do you say that there's a 
there's this terminology of economic migrants, you know, you're here to abuse our system. No, right. people are there to seek safety. Um, but yeah, even if they did think I want to reach Europe does not mean they don't still stand a very big chance of dying along the way. Right. We've alluded to it a little bit here, but there's two situations that kind of made international press. Uh, one of them, I'm sorry, I don't know how to properly pronounce her last name, but her name is Carola Raquette. Was she, she yeah. was, so she was your captain on the Sea Watch 3? Yes, for that mission in June. So what happened there? Because, again, I have a very elementary knowledge of it, uh, but from the accounts that we were talking about earlier, it sounds like, you know, not only would it be legal to assist migrants, but it would be a legal obligation. So what exactly happened mm -hmm. here? Okay, so what's happening here and in many other cases is the criminalization of sea rescuers and more broadly the criminalization of anyone who shows solidarity with refugees. So like I said, if we had rescued uh, people with a European passport in June, none of this would have happened and the captain wouldn't have been arrested. But what is happening is that this political discourse around migrants and refugees and the political interest in stopping them from arrival to Europe is now causing this completely warped um, situation where, as a ship's captain, you render assistance to a boat in distress, which is fully within your rights and within your legal obligations. It respects international maritime law international human rights law when you take them to Italy, um, somehow our politicians still have managed to criminalize that uh, and to send out this very harmful uh, message that doing that is, um, is equal to, you know, aiding illegal migration, when in fact it's European policy and the absence of safe and legal passage that is making people cross in illegal ways in the first place. So it's just a completely twisted scenario where, um, yeah, we're, we're being hindered from doing what is absolutely right, um, not just morally, but lawfully as well. So just so again, uh, it takes me a little a little bit of time to process the the politics of the EU. Are they then so to to criminalize this act? Are they subverting the laws? Are they writing new laws? Um, like. Mm. What is that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So in that specific scenario in June, uh, the, the Italian Minister of Interior, Minister Salvini, actually, like you said, created a new law, uh, which is interesting because when we try to uphold the letter and spirit of international laws, um, that should not be, you know, it shouldn't be up to the political mood of the day to change a law. Like it's, it, it's law for a reason, you know, it's enshrined. Um, to protect life and to make sure that just because you're not interested or are not willing that people don't die. So yeah, there are the tactics and the strategies have gone very, very far. And we've seen how, just how far our politicians and our governments are willing to go uh, just to keep people away. Um, but that doesn't make it right. And, and that's why we insist on doing what we do and doing it in the way that we do, because we know at the end of the day, we're on the right side of the law and on the right side of history. Were you present when that situation happened? And I guess when she was arrested? Yes. Wow. 
were you fearful for yourself and for the rest of the crew? I mean, it's not uh, unlikely that, um, I mean, at the end of the day on any ship, the, the captain is the one who is the end responsible, liable person uh, because they're the decision maker. But it's happened before to our friends and colleagues on other vessels where crew in any position have been uh, charged or accused uh, with aiding illegal migration and whatever else and nonsensical accusations they come up with. Um, but I wasn't fearful, to be honest, because I know that they just needed um, a face and a scapegoat for a political campaign. And at the end of the day, when this goes to an actual court, if it does, um, I think I think it's the big show. It's not really going to happen um, because, yeah, we we know it's right. We know that nothing we did uh, is actually illegal. So, yeah. Yeah. And the... Um the the event, I guess, that was making waves last week was, I guess, a countryman of yours. Uh, Pia Klemp was, she was also a captain, I believe. Yes, and she sailed on, uh, yeah, different rescue vessels in the Mediterranean. So she was going to be presented with the humanitarian award in France. Um, and again, not to speak for her, but I guess essentially was saying like, this is not an act that deserves a reward. And because EU policy is not backing this up, like I'm not accepting this. Yeah, that's pretty badass. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think the message is, is very clear. Um, and I respect her personal decision on that. Um, the message is we're not heroes. You're not a hero for upholding the most basic of principles of humanity and, you know, basic rights, like the right to life. Um, and also sort of exposing this hypocrisy. On the one hand, we're obviously very grateful for the support of both society and also of, you know, mayors and politicians all across Europe who have shown solidarity and who have shown a willingness to accept people into their cities um, you know, to welcome them. And that's great. And that's a big movement that is happening uh, across Europe. Um, but at the same time, we are dealing with public representatives who are, who have a direct hand in people dying because they're looking for safety. And so, yeah, kind of there is this tension between good um, relationships, those who show solidarity and very tense relationships with those who uh, have a stake in blocking us and hindering us and criminalizing us. Uh, and I think, yeah, this, this statement couldn't have been any clearer to expose that. When you're on a mission and you do rescue people, does the operation have like translators and people with like food and supplies and things like that and even like legal advice? Is, is all that part of the people on the boat? So not everything you just mentioned. So obviously we, um, for example, on the Sea-Watch and many other uh, NGO rescue vessels as well, there is nautical crew who basically are responsible for the safety of the ship and the crew and everyone on board, including people we rescue. Uh, you have, you know, the, the deck crew and the engineers. And then you have people who focus on conducting the actual rescue. So we have fast boats and their drivers. We have a 
position that is cultural mediator, which is the role that when I'm on board, that's the role I take because I speak Arabic, French. Uh, and so you, we deploy these fast boats, we approach the boat and stress and do an initial assessment. Um, we speak to people in their language or, you know, as much as possible in their language, or if not, we speak English, Arabic or French to try and get others to translate to one another. Um, we, we explain and conduct the rescue, shuttle people back to our mothership. And then while we're on board for as long as we are on board, we provide people with uh, food, uh, water, you know, basic, basic needs. Uh, legal advice is not one of them um, because that's not our role. That's not our mandate. Um, and, and it's not up to us to establish someone's legal status. We are there to rescue and to bring them to a safe port at the end of the day. So this sounds like a lot of resources are involved. Um, if someone's listening and they want to support, is there a way that uh, the NGO publicly funds? Is everything private? Can people donate? How does that work? So we are entirely funded by uh, individual donations and uh, also some, you know, like churches or private foundations who want to support us. But basically where I'm getting at is that it's the generosity of the public that keeps us up and running. We are obviously not funded by any governments because the governments that we work with have, you know, the, the interest they have is to stop us from working and, and getting any resources. Um, so, yeah, we're independent and we rely on, on this support, both financial and, you know, resources that anyone can spare in time or skill or, you know, raising awareness. So we've got a whole movement of over 500 volunteers uh, across Europe and across the world who support our work in some way or another. Um, and it's much, much needed because, yes, yeah, as we speak, there are boats in distress that are not being uh, attended to. Yeah. So where do you, where do you go from here? Um, you know, that you've, You've done quite a lot already. I don't know your age, but I'm assuming that you're young into adulthood. Um, do you think about the future? Like, do you want to keep continue continuing to work with migrants and to work in human rights? Where do you go? Uh, well, me personally, th this is what I do. I'm uh, in the humanitarian sector, uh, and that's my job anyway. So even before I was Sea Watch, um, I did that. And it is something I, I mean, there's nothing else I want to be doing with my time and my life. <laughs> um, and at the moment, it is, you know, the situation and the emergency in the Mediterranean that I feel I have most to offer. Uh, it's so neglected and it's, it, yeah, it's underserved. And interestingly as well, if you draw the parallels um, in any other setting uh, where states acknowledge that there is a, an, a real emergency going on. They pump it full of resources. You know, international NGOs are present. UNHCR is present in a refugee crisis. They provide uh, camps and basic needs and money to governments to take people in. In the Mediterranean, like I said, it's this big black hole where even UNHCR and IOM and whoever, these big uh, supranational uh, organizations that could be and are mandated to work with refugees are kind of not really doing anything. They're not coordinating. They're not providing assistance to other NGOs or governments. 
and we're kind of all just left to do it on our own. So I've never, ever worked in a humanitarian context that feels so alone and neglected as this one. Really, really, it just depends on volunteers to go and do this. Uh, and there's no structure that ensures that life is preserved and basic needs are met, which is outrageous. It's, it's a scandal. Yeah, and I think it's an issue, you know, we're so wrapped up in the media and the news here in the States with Trump. Like, everything's Trump. And unfortunately, like, when you when you put on media that's from the left, it's all just like Trump, 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 Trump. Um, so we don't, we don't, we're not always aware of everything that's going on unless we, we make an effort to be aware. If people listen to this and they want to get more information, I want to be able to send them to some websites and to social media and stuff like that. So let's plug... Uh, Sea Watch, and then let's also plug your stuff because I think your your Twitter has a lot of valuable uh, information on it as well. So let's get uh, you know those uh, those tags and those addresses and stuff like that. Yeah, cool. And and basically, like I said, this is all bigger than Sea Watch, and the parallel to the U.S. like we've both established in this brief conversation is is you know they're very very clear. And I think beyond. Yes, people are welcome to, to look at the website and the Twitter feed of Sea-Watch and understand more about our work. And if you are in any way moved to provide support, we thank you for that. And that, that would be wonderful and very valuable. Uh, and at the same time, I would also urge you to look beyond that a little. There are other NGOs as well, people who are facing 20 years in prison for having done this work and, and rescued people, you know, save them from dark. Um, and that's also not a strange thing to the U.S. Anyone providing assistance in the U.S.-Mexico border would also face criminalization. Um, and if you feel like it's much easier to help uh, close to home, then I would start there. Because if you're outraged about what's happening in the Mediterranean, you should also be outraged about what's happening at your own southern border. Yeah, fair point. Um, I still have that stuff in the show notes for this episode so people can just... As always, they can just click and it'll take them right to the sites and everything like that. Um, Heidi, thank you so much. This was really informative. Your work is really inspiring. And hopefully this conversation gets some some people to move, huh? I hope so. Thank you so much for taking the time and interest to, uh, to cover this and to talk about this. That is a wrap on episode number 125 of the TV TV podcast. Thanks everybody for listening. Thank you to Heidi. Thank you to Sea Watch. That's it, folks. As always, please take care of each other. I will catch you next time. <laughs>